It's Tuesday, November 6th, and this is The Daily Dive. As people head to the polls to vote on new members for the House and Senate, many are also voting on various statewide ballot initiatives. Two states in particular are being watched closely, Oregon and Washington. There, people will decide whether or not to increase taxes on soda and sugary drinks. What most people don't know is that Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and other American beverage companies are largely financing the initiatives, and they are being pitched as a tax on affordable groceries. Helena Bottomiller-Evich, food and agriculture reporter for Politico, joins me for the new tactic in fighting soda taxes, sweeping statewide ballot initiatives. Next, as the migrant caravan continues to make its way to the United States, a new focus is being put on the countries they are coming from. Many immigrants are fleeing poverty and violence in their home countries, but what exactly is going on there? There is a new breed of gang taking over there, ones that are preying on their own neighborhoods. Gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18 are extorting local neighborhoods with protection schemes. Gone are the days of the cartel and the kingpin. Robbie Whelan, correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about how gangs have taken over El Salvador so much that they could be the largest employers there, hiring as many as 60,000 people. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We should not be taxed on what we eat. We need to eat to survive. And if we have to cut back on what we eat, that's not going to be good, especially for for the elderly. They're penny pension already, and they're going to have to cut out special nutrients and stuff because they have to worry about the tax. Ridiculous. Joining us now is Helena Bottermiller-Evich, senior food and agriculture reporter for Politico. We've been talking a lot about the midterm elections and everybody's talking about Democrats taking over the House and Republicans retaining control of the Senate. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff. People are voting on so many things across the country. And one of the ones that always gets people riled up is this thing known as a soda tax. Residents in Washington and Oregon specifically have been bombarded with messages from groups like yes to affordable groceries, things like that, because people are saying that depending on how these states go, this could set precedent for the rest of the country and more taxes on sodas and sugary drinks across the country. But a lot of people don't know that Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Co., and other big American beverage companies are financing some of these initiatives. So what do we know about that, Helena? Yeah, it's interesting. It's basically a battle for momentum. So for the last couple of years, public health advocates have really been on a roll. They've been getting soda taxes enacted in places like Philadelphia and San Francisco and Oakland and Seattle. And so the beverage industry is really eager to block that momentum. And they're increasingly seeking statewide preemption bans, right? So they're trying to make sure entire states can't enact new food or beverage taxes. So in Washington and Oregon, they have two ballot initiatives. They each have a ballot initiative, and the beverage industry is pouring millions into those initiatives, trying to get voters to approve measures that would block any new taxes there. The money is pretty outrageous, and the opponents of these measures really aren't raising nowhere near the money that they need to raise to fight this. So in Washington state, the funding gap is actually 200 to 1. So Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and Dr. Pepper Snapple Group have poured in more than $20 million to back. It's called Initiative 1634. And yeah, I think that actually is the biggest funding gap I've ever seen in the ballot initiatives that I've covered. 200 to 1 is pretty pretty hefty. Opponents are really just raising in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, if that. And with with campaigns like this, it's all about the awareness. You know, you have to get into the eyes and ears of the voters so they know what's going on. And a lot of it also has to do with the positioning 
in the states, they're trying to position it as you have to vote yes on this so that people don't tax your groceries, when more specifically, they are just about soda and sugary drinks. Uh, a lot of the ads in Washington State have focused on groceries generally. So they'll have, you know, produce in the basket while someone on camera is talking about grocery taxes, or they'll list ground beef and kombucha, kind of suggesting <laughs> right. that, you know, those things are going to be taxed next. When, I mean, in fact, there aren't any proposals to target those products in Washington State. I mean, Seattle does have a soda tax, and a lot of analysts think that this is all about blocking other cities from following their lead. In Seattle, they've raised like $20 million from their soda tax. So you can imagine that other cities will look at that and think, well, you know, we could get revenue to, to uh, fund different health programs or pre-K like they did in Philly. So the worry the beverage industry has is that this will become popular. And that's what they're waiting to see, how people vote in Washington and Oregon. And if it goes their way, then they might go the way of uh, big tobacco and all that and pushing for these sweeping ballot measures and statewide legislation that could deny people from raising taxes. There is uh, an obesity crisis, uh, diabetes as well. More than one in three adults is overweight. There's a lot of health issues and health advocates are pointing the finger at uh, sugary drinks. So that's why they want to raise the taxes. I think in Philadelphia, they said once they raise the taxes there, soda consumption dropped by like 50%. Yeah, they'd really like to stop this in its tracks because once enough places press for these types of taxes, then you'll have public health advocates look to federal action. So there actually is a bill that a pretty liberal Connecticut Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro has that would impose a federal sugary drink tax to raise money for health prevention. And obviously that bill has not gotten traction, doesn't have very many co-sponsors, but it kind of shows the long game that these health advocates have and where they would like to go. It was a big shock to a lot of people that in California, another big liberal state, they passed one of these statewide measures basically that said you can't tax anything until 2031, I think it was. No new food and beverage taxes until 2031. That surprised a lot of public health advocates. They're still pretty angry about that. There were some broader politics going on there about the ability for cities to raise revenue. And basically, Democrats struck a deal and decided to block any new food or beverage taxes to, through 2031. So if you take that together with the ballot initiatives that are in Washington and Oregon, if those two ballot initiatives were to pass, the entire West Coast would be blocked from... Right any new food or beverage taxes, which is kind of interesting because that's actually the birthplace of these taxes. Berkeley, California was the first locale to put like a significant sin tax on sugary drinks. So it would certainly slow down the momentum if they were to get that whole coast blocked. All these funds are supposed to go for health and nutrition programs, things like that. But then the Seattle mayor jumps in and says, hey, maybe we can use some of that money for other programs. And these are reasons why a lot of people don't like to vote for these kinds of things. They don't trust politicians with money or you give them too much money and then they're going to do things that they weren't originally intended for. There's a lot of people that are wary of these things when they get proposed. For sure. There's a really interesting debate happening in Seattle over what to do with the money because the issue there is it actually raised more money than they had projected. So they had sort of figured out how to spend their funds when I, th I think they had projected that it would be more like $15 million for the year. So not everyone's crazy about the idea <laughs> of uh, help using that money to help the city balance its budget in other places. Helena Bottomiller-Evich, Senior Food and Agriculture Reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. At this very moment, Large, well-organized caravans of migrants are marching toward our southern 
border. The biggest loophole drawing illegal aliens to our borders is the use of fraudulent or meritless asylum claims to gain entry into our great country. Joining us now is Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal based in Mexico City. So we're hearing a lot of news about the migrant caravan that is on its way to the States. It's primarily Central American immigrants from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. They're coming over here to seek asylum. They're fleeing violence and poor economic conditions in their own countries. A lot of times what you hear is they're fleeing gang violence. But the question is, what kind of gang violence is happening over there? What is the case? And uh, Robbie, you wrote an article about how a new breed of gang is taking over. A lot of your article focuses on El Salvador, but what's going on in there? What's happening with these gangs? Uh, The two big gangs are MS-13 and Barrio 18. We started doing this reporting before the current kind of caravan, if you want to call it, some people call it a migrant crisis. I would not call it a crisis, but just before this idea of caravans of thousands of Central American migrants started gathering to attempt to enter the United States. I started reporting on this story back in February of this year. Part of what we were trying to do was to understand why the homicide epidemic in Latin America has gotten so bad. And if you look at the numbers, they're really striking. Latin America has about 8% of the world's population, but about a third of the world's murders happen in the region. And they're concentrated um, among just a few countries. That includes Venezuela, Colombia, the Northern Triangle, Central American countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, and Mexico. Those are the main hotspots for murder in the region. And so really what this article was set out to do at the outset was not exactly to understand migration better, but more to understand what living conditions are like and and why there's so much violence in these societies. And a lot of people think about Latin America and violence and their minds immediately go to the really towering personalities of the drug cartels. We're talking about the drug lords like Pablo Escobar or El Chapo, the head of the Sinaloa cartel who's currently on trial in New York right now. And they think about kilos, packs of 100 kilos of cocaine flying in little airplanes, two-engine airplanes over the border and and Miami Vice and that kind of thing. And that is really what the article was trying to show. That is really sort of the model of old. That's kind of an outdated view of why the region has gotten so violent, of why the region is so violent, why there's so much murder. And in fact, what's going on is that in countries like El Salvador and increasingly in places like Mexico and Venezuela and Honduras, the violent actors are really more these disorganized street gangs that are, to the extent that they are organized, are loyal to smaller factions called cliques, mm-hmm. and that these factions don't answer to like a really strong centralized authority the way that the drug cartels of old did. And so the violence is a lot more chaotic, a lot more unpredictable, and a lot harder to solve. And they're preying on their own local communities. A lot of these things have to do with extortion payments, you know, give us money and we'll protect you from other gang violence and, and murders and things like that. So that's kind of the new model. It's almost like, uh, you know, mobs that we had back in the day. They're focusing on their local communities there and terrorizing them. So in Mexico right now, one of the really interesting things that's happening is, well, Mexico had more than 30,000 murders last year. It was the, the highest level of homicide in the country's peacetime history. You have to go all the way back to the Mexican Revolution uh, that began in 1910 to find a year when that many people were killed. And so we, when we look at the situation and say, well, what's going on? One of the things we can really point to is that the big cartels, the Sinaloa cartel, the Zetas, the Gulf cartel, that, that dominate, these groups that dominated the, the landscape for organized crime in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they're all kind of splitting up. And that's a result of U.S. intervention. I mean, DEA efforts and U.S.-funded efforts to sort of break apart the cartels to stop the flow of drugs into the U.S. have been, by and large, successful. But the problem was that their goal was maybe not the right goal. Their goal was to decapitate these groups, Mm -hmm. take out the biggest leaders, the big drug lords, put them in jail, 
But what happened as a result, the sort of unintended consequence of that was that the cartel split into much smaller groups that are all now sort of warring for dominance over certain local drug markets, over certain local drug trafficking routes. The result has been that now instead of, you know, in some places where we only had one cartel dominating a state or a city or a town or a county, we now have 20, 20 yeah. street gangs that are essentially much less loyal to the business model of, of trafficking drugs and much more dependent to fund their wars against one another on things like extorting local businesses, restaurants, bodegas. The organized crime figures go from being well-respected, almost revered members of the community who build a soccer field for the, for the kids to play on, and they become these sort of parasites that rely on the community, on extorting the community and stealing from them in order to fund their their right. operation. And the money is there. I mean, uh, it's going back to El Salvador, some estimates say that gangs earn about $20 million a year from extortion. And MS-13, uh, this was just crazy what I saw in your article, MS-13 and Barrio 18 may be El Salvador's largest employers, employing as many as 60,000 people to be lookouts, collectors, assassins, the whole thing. And by contrast, yeah. the two largest private employers, which are underwear makers, Hanes and uh, Fruit of the Loom, together they employ like 20,000 people. So it's more lucrative to be part of one of these gangs or be a lookout, be one of these people helping them out. One of the sort of saddest moments when I was in El Salvador reporting for this story was meeting with a, a school principal at an elementary school who I, I put in the story. And he, sa he said to me, while we were speaking, we were in his office and I had sort of a few little heads of third or fourth graders speaking around the doorframe to try to figure out what was going on between me and this school principal. But what he said was that these kids don't have a lot of choices. They can either go and unload trucks at the local market and make a few hundred bucks a week or they can make a few thousand bucks a week, you know, extorting other businesses for the gangs. And so when, when the economy is as bad as it is in a place like El Salvador, the choice, and there's no choice. There's, it's a no-brainer which one you're going to gravitate towards. It's important to understand the sense of scale here. El Salvador is a tiny country. It's about six and a half million people. And $20 million a year for a street gang is actually peanuts compared to what drug trafficking groups earn. Even the smallest drug trafficking group in, in Mexico, for example, is probably earning about 10 times that much a year. And when you get up to the big cartels, Sinaloa and the Jalisco New Generation cartel, I mean, these guys are earning in the billions a right. year from drug tra trafficking. But that's also part of the picture here. So when you have a really lucrative line of business, such as drug trafficking, you will do everything in your power to protect that line of business. And that usually means in Mexico or in Colombia, that means avoiding killing people and attracting attention and making conditions in a society unlivable so that the authorities come after you and catch you. If you're a drug in Mexico and you're, and you're making a great living moving heroin or, or, or Colombian cocaine across the border, you're not going to indiscriminately kill people just to make a point right. because they can attract the attention of the police and of the army. And eventually it's all going to come crashing down on you. But in a place like El Salvador, where the stakes are lower and when the pie is smaller, life becomes cheaper. And it's really astounding to see what things have gotten like in, in a place like El Salvador. I mean, almost every person you talk to on the street there, when you meet, if you meet a, if you meet a priest or you meet a community leader, or if you meet just a worker, especially someone who's ever tried to migrate away from El Salvador, they will describe to you how their every facet of their lives is just dominated by the gangs. Unless you live in a, in a gated community and have a lot, a lot of money, talking sort of top upper echelons of society, top 10 or 20% of society, Unless you're part of that group, your life is really going to be subject to the gang's whims. They're the local boogeymen. As a person living in those communities, you have to keep track of which group controls what street, where they work, you know, where you can work, where you can travel. And, you know, knowing, hey, if I'm on this bus route, we might get stopped by a gang. And if you live in the wrong part of town, they're going to take you and hold you for ransom. I think that was part of uh, your story also. A guy got caught up in a bus 
he lived in the wrong neighborhood and then they were trying to extort money from him. And we talk about how yeah. much control these gangs have over the government and things like that. From your story, there was um, an example of how the president of El Salvador cut a deal with gangs, basically saying, we'll keep your leaders outside of solitary confinement so that they can communicate with you and all that stuff. And murders drop like 40%. But once they, those truce that, you know, that truce and all those things ended, crime and murders went right back up. So they're using this violence as their bargaining chip. Two threads there that you mentioned. I'll talk about them. I'll talk about them in order. One is, yeah, you mentioned the anecdote from my story where I met this guy. This is actually a really crazy story to me because we were hanging out outside some of the call centers, which are some of the biggest employers for deportees who are sent back to El Salvador from the U.S. And we ended up meeting this guy who ended up being, having a big role in the story. I was asking him about how he got deported. This is a guy who speaks perfect English, you know, unaccented English, no trace of a Spanish or you know, Salvadoran accent. And he said, I was on my way to the Giant Eagle to buy some milk for my kids. And I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. Giant Eagle is a supermarket chain mm -hmm. in the mid-Atlantic. It's in places like Western Maryland and Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. But it's, it's not a big place. It's not like Trader Joe's or something where it has national presence. But this is a pretty small chain. So I did this double take. I said, you were going where? <laughs> and he told me that he was from Western Maryland. The other thing that didn't make it in the story, actually, but that was kind of important, was that he had the names of his four kids tattooed on his forearms. Mm -hmm. They were tattooed in sort of a Gothic script. And in El Salvador, having any kind of tattoo, no matter what it says, is a major taboo in sort of formal society. So if you have a tattoo, no one's going to ask a second question about what does that mean or why do you have that tattoo? They're going to assume right off the bat that you're a member of a gang. And so when he was stopped on his bus on the way home uh, from, from work at the call center going to his house, and he lives in a Barrio 18 controlled neighborhood, he was stopped by MS-13 members. They saw his ID card, they saw that he lived in rival territory, and they saw his tattoos on his arms. And, and that was basically the end of the discussion. I mean, he was taken off the bus and held, a, kidnapped for three weeks, lost his job, lost all his money, had to call a guy he knew he'd met in an immigration detention center in the U.S. who was an MS-13 member in Maryland and convinced this guy, had this guy convince his captors to let him go free, that he wasn't a member of any gang at all. He was just a deportee trying to get by. And I thought that was really interesting, the idea that he knows so little about the rule of the road in El Salvador that he comes with the tattoos of his kids' names, his four little kids tattooed on his arms. And that's what got him, that's what really marked him as, as a threat to these gangs and what really uh, made him a target. I thought that was fascinating because it really yeah. was, it said in a nutshell to me how little people know about what society is like in El Salvador, how the slightest of infractions, having a, having a tattoo in the wrong font can make you a victim of this kind of violence. That's how, that's how pervasive it is. This article started off by looking into homicide rates and things, but this does paint a picture picture of, like you said, you don't know, we don't live there. And it paints a picture of how bad this violence really is and, and why people do flee the country, why they say, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to send my family ahead of me. I'm going to try to meet with them later or whatever the case is. Uh, but we need to get out of here because we don't want to live in this type of culture anymore. It's a great read and it's a great look to see how these gangs have changed and how they are preying on their own neighborhoods in this new, you know, these new economic model that they kind of use, you know, they're turning on their own people. But, um, you know, so like I said, it's a great read and everybody should check it out. Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.